0: You're listening to Canada's Court,
1: the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information.
2: I'm Glenn Sandberg of Sandberg Barristers. Today we're going to hear the case of Andrei Beikovic versus His Majesty the King. The case comes before the court as of right following a dissent in the Alberta Court of Appeal. In September of 2017, police investigated the purchase of virtual gift cards using fraudulent credit card information. There were two IP addresses of interest, which police believed were used in the transactions. Warrants were executed at both residences associated, and the appellant was arrested. The appellant was charged with 33 offenses relating to firearms and the possession and use of third parties' credit cards and personal information documents. At trial, he argued that his Section 8 Charter Rights Alia had been violated. The trial judge held that it was not objectively reasonable to recognize his subjective expectation of privacy in an IP address used by an individual, and found no Section 8 breach. The appellant was convicted of 13 counts. The majority of the Court of Appeal of Alberta agreed with the trial judge in her interpretation of the law governing the Section 8 analysis and dismissed the appeal. Justice Velduis, in dissent, would have allowed the appeal and ordered a new trial, holding that the appellant did have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the IP addresses leading to a Section 8 breach. The appellant appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada as of right.
3: The case of Andre Baikovitz against His Majesty the King for the appellant Andre Baikovitz, Heather Ferg, Sarah Renkin, for the intervener Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Anil K. Kapoor and Cameron Cotton O'Brien. For the intervener British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Danielle J. Song KC and Vibert M. Jack. For the respondent, His Majesty the King, Rajbir Dillon, for the intervener, Director of Public Prosecutions, David Sherm Brooker and Alison Ratzoy. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Andrew Hotkey. For the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Mika B. Renkin, and Michael Barringer.
4: Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. We appear this morning on behalf of the appellant. I'm joined by my co-counsel, Ms. Rankin, and we're here as a result of the dissenting judgment of Justice Veldhus below. We're here on the issue of whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy in IP addresses, and our position is that the majority of the court below made errors in their application
3: I think the screen is frozen now. Uh,
5: Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice. Yes, Mark. Uh, it, se- it seems that we've lost connection with uh, Counsel uh, Ferg. Uh, we are currently working at uh, reestablishing that connection with her. Uh, if it pleases the court, uh, we can take a, uh, just a, a, a just a few moments to assess the situation.
3: All right. So if it takes too long, you let me know and uh, we'll adjourn.
5: Certainly. Thank you. Hello, Mr. Chief Justice, Justices. Uh, Counsel Berg will now be able to resume her submissions.
3: Thank you.
4: Thank you. Um, As I was saying, I think when I got cut off, our position is that the majority of the court below made errors in their application of the governing test. And both Justice Veldhus' approach and the conclusion she reached that there is a reasonable expectation of privacy were correct. Now, in terms of the framework, there's no dispute between the parties or in the court below about the applicable four-part test that's repeatedly applied in this area of the law, but rather stark differences in the approach on the first and fourth branches, those being one, defining the subject matter of the search, and two, whether an expectation of privacy found would be objectively reasonable. So, in the first half of our submissions, I'll address the characterization of the subject matter of the search and in the second half, my co-counsel, Ms. Rankin, will address the issue of objective reasonableness and some of the intervener submissions that we've received. Now, in terms of the subject matter of the search, we have three key points that we wish to cover and highlight this, this morning. The first is that it's our submission that the majority failed to take a functional approach in defining the subject matter when they performed their analysis. The second is that the correct approach required a broader inquiry in terms of what's at risk for society as a whole. And the third point is that the correct approach required that the investigative technique be assessed prospectively, and with regard to the long-term consequences for society as a whole. And when the test is performed that way as directed uh, in Spencer and other decisions of this court, the conclusion um, that, that comes is that the information at issue ought to be protected. So first in terms of the functional approach, both the respondent and the court below characterize the subject matter here, the IP addresses, as just an abstract string of numbers. They say there's no privacy interest because standing alone, the numbers themselves are meaningless. It's our position that this approach and this manner of characterization is the one expressly disavowed by the court in Spencer. And when we're dealing with informational privacy, we look at the information broadly and functionally, and this means understanding the information as it's situated in the larger context and having regard to what's at stake for society as a whole. And we submit that Justice Veldhus' analysis ought to be preferred at the outset on this point because she looked beyond the subject matter as a string of numbers and she focused in on what the information tends towards or has the potential to reveal in terms of the intimate details of the lifestyle and personal choices of the individuals. I got, I got, does,
6: the, sense, I got the sense from Justice Feldhus's reasons that um, she was more concerned not so much about this case, but about the case where the police might, you know, sort of what if, what if the police take this number and go to Google, and and find out what what websites the uh, the holder of the IP address is logged into. Um, this was just a case where the police did what we said in Spencer. They're supposed to do is is get a warrant, and then they have the identifying information. So is 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 your approach to this case that that we need to look at the what ifs? The Justice Valdeus directs us to, um, because if that's the case, then I've got some what-if questions too.
4: Well, it's our position that the analysis that needs to be done is prospective. And so that does include the what-if applications in terms of things that are reasonably conceivable um, for how this information could be collected, how it could be used, how it could be correlated, and how it can function. Um, So it's our position that's part of the prospective aspect of the test that we're directed to to take a look at. And then it's also part of the greater issue of the normative analysis in terms of what is at stake. We have to have that society-wide perspective Um, and this is where we come back to the focus on the capabilities and the potential of the information.
7: And I guess, Ms. Ferg, that's why you've put paragraph 31 of Spencer in your condensed book. Uh, It is necessarily, according to paragraph 31, perspective because it's the tendency of information sought to support inferences in relation to other personal information. And I gather that's also why you've put the expert report in which doesn't appear to have been contradicted. And it it does provide at least an evidentiary basis for the idea that it can support these sorts of inferences and it isn't just a string of numbers.
4: Yes. And the parallel that I would draw um, in terms of the what if is, you know, we had in, in um, America, uh, the chief justice pointed to the example of, well, uh, someone could be sitting in a room with their spouse, texting their their paramour um, as an example of the way that the technology can be used. And, you know, that's a what if that's readily available in terms of the context of what it was at issue there. We've got to, um, at paragraphs 44 and 45 of our factum, we've adre- addressed this uh, this issue of IP gathering, which is what Justice Veldhus um, was sort of focused on in terms of the iterative capabilities of this technology, where all you really need is two. All you really need is two IP addresses, um, and you need one of them to be correlated with some sort of identifiable content. So, if I post something, you know, the example in the factum is Facebook. But if I post something uh, in my in my name, it's it's identified to me, and the police go and ask. Um, wherever I posted it to, can I have the IP address of this user? And then they take that IP address and compare it against any other instance of an IP address they've gathered where the user isn't identified, say there's postings using a pseudonym or something like that. Um, and anonymity is immediately shattered. And so the the issue in terms of Justice Veldhus' analysis in our submission is that the real privacy interest that she identifies as being at stake here is that there's absolute if if this decision holds there's absolutely nothing preventing any third party from handing over IP addresses without a warrant whenever the police ask and for
8: whatever reason what, they what if they don't ask?
6: ask what if what if um, Google or Facebook actually came forward that there was a whistleblower with information about child pornography associated with an IP address. Do the police need a warrant to treat to treat with that at all?
4: Well that's one of that's one of the approaches. So I had to have kind of two answers to that. The first would be in terms of that outcome, that would be not engaged when we're defining what's at risk, defining the subject matter of the search, and doing those front-end things in terms of where the constitutional limits are. Um, But, of course, in the proper application of this test, there can and may be circumstances where, you know, there may be waiver. There may be um, different factual circumstances that arise. I mean, this is kind of the, the same issue that we get at, in Reeves, in terms of the handing over of conversations, the same concerns that were raised in America, in terms of, well, what if a complainant comes with this information, you know, to the police? So, the so
3: there's a lot of variables. Certainly, um, but yeah. is that, no, go oh, sorry, no, go ahead. Chief. Is that your statement or a submission that, in any investigation, the police would need to get a warrant to start with?
4: yes the police um, well and the law uh, certainly provides for it um, Justice who points to the existence of the um, the the tracker the tr- uh, I'm sorry the words escaping me um, the section of the Criminal Code um, in terms of the transmission data and um, So that tool is available on the reasonable suspicion standard. Um, So they have the tools they need to access it. Uh, And the the law, of course, provides for other exceptions in terms of um, exigent circumstances. So in this case,
9: Ms. Ferg, in this case, precisely, we know that, as uh, my colleague, Justice Brown said, uh, the police did what Spencer was uh, requiring them to do. So, um, and they got the information, they got the personal information after they, they did what uh, Spencer was as, requiring them to do. So, in you, in this specific case, what should have been done? Because you're complaining <laughs> about the fact that they, they got those IP addresses, but... Uh, Technically speaking, those addresses were saying were telling nothing to the police until they got uh, their uh, production order.
4: Yes, and our position is, in this particular case, the fact that they didn't get an authorization and the fact that we're here brings to the court the larger question of what is at stake. And our position on this point is that it is not the case when you apply the four-part test and looking at a reasonable expectation of privacy, um, and it's our position that both the trial judge and the majority err on this point, it is not the case that the IP addresses will only ever be used as a precursor to a Spencer warrant. Our position is that when the power of IP addresses are considered on their own terms, as they exist with other forms of information and as they exist as part of the infrastructure necessary for digital communications, that when they're considered together, um, they are a way to simply sidestep Spencer Warrants. And so this case, and considering the IP address, brings the question to the court of which, which hasn't been considered, should these attract that constitutional prote- uh, protection as well?
10: So let me ask you this then, because I think that in a case where you just take the IP address and go for a Spencer warrant, um, we're talking about a sp- criminal investigation into a specific uh, uh, crime and uh, circumstances where there seems to, would seem to be little um, suggestion that a production order or warrant wouldn't be available. But my question is this Does the uh, reasonable expectation of privacy in an IP address change depending on whether the police are asking about a specific crime or whether the state is somehow gathering information perhaps a little bit more broadly? Um, So when we're doing the balancing we look at state's interests, but we, do we look at the specific interest that was engaged in this particular request or do we look at it more broadly?
4: I think the answer, I would, <clears throat> excuse me, I would submit to the court that the answer to that is, is fairly readily answered in relation, um, by looking at it through the traditional approach, which is, do they have the grounds Right. Because if they're looking at a particular crime, um, they can obtain this with a judicial authorization on the reasonable suspicion standard,
10: which is, of course, constitutionally compliant. So obviously Um, I didn't ask my question properly. Let me try again. Does the reasonable expectation of privacy in an IP address depend on why the state is asking for it? Our position would be no.
4: Because the the point focuses in on and my actually my colleague who I'll turn it over to momentarily um, the the analysis in terms of the normative expectation and what's at stake and a content neutral analysis. Um, asks us to step back and consider those broader questions at this front-end privacy stage. Um, And my colleague, and I think this might be a good time to pass it over, is going to address very specifically, (laughs) certainly, specifically and in detail, the role of the law enforcement interests. But in answer to your question, the question of why they want it um, is very important because if there is no expectation of privacy, it doesn't matter why they want it. They can ask for it for all purposes.
6: So just before you consign Ms. Rankin to our tender mercies, Ms. Verb, um Yes. So as I understand it then, the the, the the problem isn't necessarily with what happened here, but it's with the alternative courses that police might take having received the IP address. And and I want to suggest that perhaps the answer to that is not to require a warrant for an IP address, but to require a warrant for police to take any of those alternative steps on the basis that those steps would tend to reveal core biographical information. Because the worry is that that if you require a warrant for an IP address, right, which is just an initial investigatory step um, that doesn't reveal core biographical information, well, what other initial investigatory steps might 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 require that? Like what, for example, if a if a domestic partner comes forward, right, having witnessed, um, you know. Witnessed it on the on the on on the suspect's device, right? Did, do police have to get a warrant to even talk to her?
4: I think the difference here, and the consideration at play is what Justice Beldhus raises in terms of the iterative um, process, and perhaps the better parallel is to the IMEIs or the Stingray cases. The danger here is in the collection of, you know, to use the vernacular using the cases, the breadcrumbs, right? And if you collect up enough of these breadcrumbs, patterns emerge. And that, that concern in terms of the capabilities to draw patterns, make inferences, and that kind of thing is one raised um, by IP addresses in a way that it is because, you know, it's the, it's the same concerns as we're sort of alive and wise. It's a different, a different sort of privacy problem is that when we move through the digital world, which is every bit as real as this world and many in the physical world in many ways, we just don't expect at any point in time for someone to be tracking all of that. And so I would say that the, the response is that the concern is more the tracking, um, at, and that just doesn't exist with a single complainant coming forward and saying, hey, here's, here's a thing that happens to disclose an IP address.
7: Ms. Ferg, if I could follow up with that just on one po- uh, point, just so I can understand the contours of your argument. In Spencer, of yes. course, the police did have the IP address because uh, it was disclosed in the Limeware program for the file sharing. So there's yes. nothing wrong with the police uh, identifying publicly information, publicly available information that's disclosed on the file sharing program like LimeWare. So it's not gonna hamper police investigations to that extent. What you're saying is if the police go to a company that perhaps administers LimeWare and then says, give us all the IP addresses of all the uh, users that have, that have accessed this program that's when they need a production order. It's the, uh, if it's publicly available and they can get it on their own, fine. But when they go to somebody and says, aid us in the context of this criminal investigation, turn over this information to us, that's when they need a production order. Is that, is that what yes. you're saying? Yes
4: yes um that that is essentially our position, and importantly, it wouldn't necessarily be aid us in the context of this criminal investigation if um, this uh, if there is no expectation of privacy, it may very well be aid us in finding out more of this person who is of interest to us for whatever reason, and the you know, our friend, uh, our, my friend characterizes, um, brings up sort of bad faith considerations, but that wouldn't be in bad faith if there's no privacy. And it's our position that to give the investigative arm of the state that much power is simply too much in a free democracy in terms of people that may or may not become of interest to them for any reason, whether it's, um, because they're criminal targets or whether it's because they've been particularly critical of the police um or or any other reason of interest to them so i am uh going to cede my remaining time to ms rankin um, well, i have she a will question. The- excuse oh, me yes? i have a
10: question coming back to your issue about um The breadcrumbs and we were talking about the core biographical uh, information. If Mm -hmm. I understood the evidence of the expert correctly, um, he talks about the fact that when we're looking at residential uh, subscribers, that uh, the external IP address could be dynamic, meaning it could change continually. So my question is then, is there really a reasonable expectation of privacy in that type of IP address that could change uh, from one day to another?
4: Our position is that there is because the thing that's important about it um, is that it tethers you know, no matter what the static IP is for a period of time, it tethers the individual and the individual account to that location to that device for that period of time. Um, and so there is always there is always the case. That is part of the infrastructure. Some, it will be a designated number um, that is fixed. And if it changes some months later, um, it is, it's still where all of the activity was recorded.
7: Even for a dynamic IP address, it's still a unique identifier. That's the point. It can change, but it's always associated with this external uh, address for an external IP or an internal for a particular product. So it's always a unique identifier, even though it may change.
4: It will always be associated with the router and the ISP will always know which one it was.
9: Thank you. Good
8: morning. Before I turn to my submissions on the role of law enforcement in the objective reasonableness of an expectation of privacy, I want to deal with a couple of the questions that came up just now um, in particular the issue of the the what ifs um, and the difference between this case perhaps and the broader context and in my submission when there's a distinction I think in the cases between when the court is considering what we might call a a class of privacy versus the specific factual application to a particular case. And I think the cases are clear that when the court is looking at um, a type of privacy, a class of privacy for the first time, the focus is much broader. It is that societal normative lens first. And so the focus is on what the information, what the data is capable of doing at the present time, uh, not, you know, future speculation, but it is uh, beyond the specific facts of the case to the normative lens, what's at stake in this as a whole. And we know that police currently do open source searches. They have access to public information on the internet. And so the prospect of gathering IP addresses associated with information retrieved in open source searches, Facebook, Twitter, uh, that kind of thing, is at stake in the present moment. And it's an issue in the issue of the privacy interest in and IP address. Ms. Rankin, Rankin.
9: one? Sorry, go ahead, Justice Okay, so Ms. Rankin, I have a question. Is it your position that IP an IP address uh, can be subject uh, to a reasonable expectation of privacy or should always be subject? to a reasonable expectation of privacy?
8: So the position would be that it's no different than any other privacy interest. The fact that it is capable of sustaining an expectation of privacy does not dictate the specific existence of an expectation of privacy on a factual scenario. So if you look, Edwards is a good clear example, I think. There is no dispute that there is a privacy interest in a home, in an apartment, Mr. Edwards did not have an expectation of privacy in every home and every apartment in the specific facts of his, you know, sometimes visiting his girlfriend's home. So I think there's no area that is always um, private in every factual iteration, um, but certainly an, uh, an IP address attracts the reasonable expectation of privacy in any particular future or different factual permutation uh, would need to be analyzed for its application or presence in that particular case if that distinction makes sense.
9: Okay, thank
7: you. Ms. Rankin, I wonder whether um, you need to go into the uh, Big Brother-type scenario of future technology and the surveillance state, because the expert evidence in this case, as I understand it, which wasn't contradicted, is that it's not necessary to obtain the ISP health subscriber information to accurately ad- identify a particular internet user. So there is a, even though this information is available, there is, it seems to me, uh, a practical obscurity in and privacy interest in this information. And that's why, I guess, the question is always is at the expectation of privacy as against s- state intrusion, not the fact that this information is available. It's it's the use of an investigative technique. So I wonder, in light, in, in light of the, Mr. Musters' report, one needs to go into this scenario of, you know, the big brother state and what can be done in the future. I think we're already there according to what Mr. Musters says.
8: Yes, thank you. I would wholeheartedly agree with that, that there is a distinction between looking at this broadly in the present moment, what the technology does and is capable of, and that is what Mr. Musters gives us in his report and what the court has done in, you know, what I called a moment ago, class privacy, situations, Morocco looking at texting the lover in the presence of a spouse. That is possible right now. Um, it's not necessary to look at future speculative technology and we would disagree with the characterization of the dissenting justice finds the expectation of privacy based on the current potential and the information available about current potential the future consequences are even more dire. They are even more concerning. Um, but it's not reliant on the development. You know, I think Tesling is the example of that distinction in the law. We're in the situation where the capability is current. Um, and Mr. Muster's report, I think, makes that clear.
0: And I'll can turn- I, may I yeah, Ms. Rankin, may I just ask you here, just kind of both conceptually, And practically, I mean, there seems to be in the various decisions at the Court of Appeal a difference between um, the importance of what the police are really after. And I find that a hard concept. Should we care what the police are really after, conceptually, uh, at, at the general stage and practically, um, at, at the individual stage, when what we're talking about is, you can talk about it as a building block, as a key that opens up something. So so help me with that part of, of the analysis and tests that seems to, or, or different approaches that seem to emerge here.
8: Certainly, and I, this is taken up in some of the intervener material. Uh, my response to that would be that the most the most useful clarification comes perhaps in Spencer itself. When the court says, what are the police really after? It is not about the investigative steps. It is not about the goal of the police in a particular case or more broadly, what the police are really after. And I think that the, um, just pulling up the paragraphs, if I can't locate them now, I'll perhaps provide them in reply. But the, the explanation in Spencer when that is dealt with gives examples from prior cases about what the democratic interest at stake is, what the society-wide interest at stake is, what the police are really after is interpreted and asked in my submission. I think Spencer says this as explicitly as it can, is a, is a way of clarifying the privacy interest at stake, not any particular police concerns.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, Anil Kapoor.
11: Morning, uh, Chief Justice, Justices. Um, There's nothing wrong with my connection. It's just that I've got a bit of a hoarse throat, so I apologize for that. Um, The submission for the CCLA is to widen the aperture a little bit and talk about uh, the liberty interest that's baked into expectation of privacy, or maybe in reverse, the digital world, the internet, is ubiquitous. Everyone accesses it. Everyone leaves a trail of where they've been. That exists. It is It is available and static. It exists. No one person who accessed the internet ought to be looking over their shoulder or wondering whether the police will come for their digital trail. The essence of our liberty in our society is that's not, a, that's not an expectation that we harbor. We harbor the following expectation. They will come and look for my digital trail if they have a basis to do so, and if it's moderated by a judge. That's the core of the j- prior judicial authorization scheme. And when we apply it in, in the, or understand it as an artifact of liberty and into the digital world, When you don't have something publicly available and you've got to capture it from either Moneris or someone else, you have to have a warrant to do it. That's the bargain, respectfully, between us and the state or law enforcement. We have no problem in our conception of liberty to allow the police to gain access to these digital trails, digital tracks, Not a problem at all if they have a reasonable basis as articulated under our constitution and moderated by a judge. The thing about the IP address that's really interesting is and I think uh, Justice Martin, you mentioned it a minute ago. It literally is a key. It's something that works with something else. So when, when you have it, of course they will go and get a Spencer warrant because they're trying to determine who the subscriber is. And the ISP is the other end of the key, and it locks in, and then you get the address, you get the identifier. Keep in mind that the the ISP is assigned to various, uh, sorry, the ISPs are assigned various IP addresses, and so it's easy for them once they get an, I, an, an IP address, knowing it's theirs, to identify the subscriber. So it's not as if the IP address is a nothing. The IP address is an essential component to identifying the subscriber for that address. Could I
7: ask you mechanically, Mr. Kapoor, would this, uh, yes. could this be done in the context of one production order for both the uh, IP address and then the, the uh, subscriber information, or would it be at the stage of two production orders, the first one on the basis of... Uh, the reasonable suspicion from Moneris and then later after they've got the IP, um, the the, the ISP, then going to the the ISP to provide the, um, the subscriber information. So is what you're calling, could it be done in one order or would it be necessarily in two orders?
11: Uh, I think theoretically it could be done in one, but it's probably better to have two just to keep the lines clear for subsequent judicial review if there's going to be. Um, and But you raised a good point that when, you, when you're going to get the uh, IP address, your grounds exist. Either they're sufficient or they're not. The IP address doesn't Uh, enhance your grounds in the investigation it allows you to go somewhere to decode the content so um, that's another way of understanding that the IP address is um, has content that's important but I want to in the last minute I have just finish with the importance of this issue from a liberty perspective you know there are there are there are software programs out there which allow you to you know, change your IP address like so you can sort of ghost yourself on the internet and some people say, well, you can do that, but why should someone have to do that if they want to maintain privacy? They should be free from the state, private as they wish, public as they wish, and the state only get access when They've got reasonable grounds over their private exchanged information. It is the liberty to be left alone that's important here. Thank you. Those are my submissions.
3: Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, Danielle Son.
12: Yes, uh, thank you, Chief Justice, uh, Justices. Uh, I'm going to try to address some of the questions that I've heard this morning, but just uh, as an outline uh, of the BCCLA's position, uh, Vibert Jack and I Advance three main submissions uh, in our factum, and we focus on the overarching normative pro- of approach to section eight uh, and firstly uh, we say that the so-called meaningless numbers um, of ip address I, I, <laughs> ip addresses indirectly reveal highly private information and that indirect connection to an anonymous online activity is worthy of section eight protection uh, second we we say that uh, this court should apply the normative inquiry in this case through a relational lens, uh, because we we have to account for the relative power imbalance between individuals and internet companies and the ability to control anonymity. And uh, and third, uh, the, we would urge the court to consider the corporate that corporate interests should not determine the boundaries of online privacy or augment state power. Uh, but before I. Dealt into uh, those submissions, I I do want to try to address uh, some of Justice Brown's concerns that uh, he had raised initially, and uh, I think Justice Brown had suggested that um, the court might consider requiring a warrant uh, to obtain information um, that an IP address would tend to needed to tend to reveal uh, identity or or. Or um, establish identity, and in my submission, that would simply shift the subject matter of the search. Uh, the search isn't to the information, or the police aren't looking for information um, that are, that is connected to the IP addresses. Uh, at the outset, the 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 analysis has to focus in on the IP address itself, and the the information that the IP address tends to reveal, the private information that it tends to reveal really is the what if. It's what if uh, the police can use an IP address to uh, get further information from third party websites. That's the 10 to uh, part of Spencer that uh, Just, Justice Cromwell had, had alluded to. And uh, in my submission, the normative approach requires that broader application uh, so that um, uh, that uh, anonymity is is properly protected when we deal with informational. Uh, I mean, the the normative,
6: the normative approach is being asked to do a lot of heavy work here. We've got and, and and especially when we talk about it being applied through lenses, we have an abstract term being applied through a metaphor, which that should bring clarity. Um, but help me understand if if the concern is that the IP address tends to reveal information where it is used to get information from the third-party website, then how is that mischief not addressed by requiring a warrant to get that information from a third-party website?
12: Well, the in this case, uh, Justice Brown, um, we the BCCLA's position would be that the 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 warrant needs to be applied, or there needs to be an application for a warrant uh, for the IP address because the IP address resides within um, the boundaries of a a third-party corporation itself. And that IP address, uh, as the expert evidence has established, is required to access the Internet. So in order for an individual, a citizen, to, to participate meaningfully in modern society, that IP address, that unique identifier has to be given um, and and disclosed to that third party. And that loss of control, physical control as it were, to that third party uh, can't uh, mean that the individual no longer has uh, control over their anonymity uh, itself. And that's why in in my submission, uh, you would still need a a warrant uh, before obtaining that IP address. And it's not like the situation in Spencer as just as Jamal had um, noted, where the police had publicly available um, IP addresses in the LimeWire software. Um, So, uh, And that would sort of segue into what I wanted to address in in terms of Justice Kara Katsanis' question, uh, when she asked whether um, a reasonable expectation of privacy would depend on whether the police were asking about a specific crime, but in my submission, uh, that would not be consistent with a content neutral approach to uh, um, Section 8. I, I, and I guess, see my time is up. I,
10: I Chief Justice, one last question? I guess, I mean, the reason why I ask is because the real concern that's raised here is that this will hamper police investigation into things such as child pornography. And so I would ask you the same question that uh, Justice uh, Jamal um, just asked uh, of Mr. Kapoor. Um, would it I mean necessarily do so is there um, is there a way to uh, get a production order that would um, allow you to get both pieces of information or is it just not an onerous procedure what's your answer to the law enforcement concerns
12: Um, my answer is twofold it uh, getting a production order is is not an onerous procedure i mean obviously the criminal code has uh, um, the threshold uh, requisite grounds that are required but in my submission uh, police routinely obtain production orders, and and uh, the the threshold is not high or onerous. The second thing I would say is that law enforcement interests, there are uh, through the section eight analysis and the, and the steps that we take, are taken into account in other areas. So even if this court finds that there is an expect, a reasonable expectation of privacy in an IP address, there are still uh, ways in which this court can find that law. Uh, and allow law enforcement to it, obtain information um, uh, with respect to um, the uh, the framework of Section 8, where this court looks at whether, perhaps, uh, through the ancillary powers doctrine, uh, 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 common law powers might widen to allow police to obtain this type of information. And and uh, and so, in my submission, the entire Section 8 framework allows for law enforcement interests to be taken into account later in the analysis. Thank you very much.
7: You. May I ask a question, Chief Justice? Go ahead. Um, it, it seems to me, uh, and you filed the report from the uh, Privacy Commissioner of Canada from 2013, um, which I guess supports, confirms the approach that's taken in the expert report. It seems to me that the analysis might turn on whether or not an IP address can reveal biographical core information, even without the subscriber information. That really becomes the nub of the issue. And if you can construct a profile about a particular computer or a particular user, even without the Spencer uh, warrant from the ISP, that seems to establish the proposition. And I gather that's what the Privacy Commissioner's report uh, is relied on for.
3: We can't hear you.
12: You're on mute. Yes. yes I, I, um, so, Justice Jamal, that that's quite correct. And um, the, the other jurisdictions, for example, the uh, Court of Justice of the, of the European Union, uh, focused in on the possibility of securing identifying information. It need not be directly from an <clears throat> ISP and just getting a name or address, but... Uh, as the export report in this case had uh, indicated, it's simply even going to different third parties obtaining fragments of information and I'm just going to, my last point will be this, Uh, I'm going to steal the analogy from uh, Nader Hassan in in digital privacy where it's more like Surratt's pointillist paintings where all the individual dots may not mean much, but when you take a step back the, uh, the picture is revelatory. Thank you.
3: Thank you.
13: Chief Justice, members of the court, my submissions have three parts. First, I'll provide you with a brief overview of the Crown's position. Second, I'll argue why the trial judge correctly described the subject matter of the search as IP addresses which the police sought to further the investigation. Third, I'll argue why the appellant had no objectively reasonable privacy interest. For the overview, I asked the court to consider what the police were investigating. A person stole people's credit card data and then used that stolen data to defraud a liquor store. Because the appellant committed the offenses mostly online, the IP addresses were part of the digital record of the offenses. By themselves, the IP addresses revealed nothing. To make use of them, the police needed subscriber information, which they obtained through a production order. At the start of the investigation, before the police even obtained the IP addresses, all they knew was that an unknown person was committing fraud online from an unknown place. After the police got the IP addresses, but before they got the subscriber information, the only additional things they knew was that the fraud was likely committed in Calgary by someone using TELUS's internet service. The appellant remained anonymous to the police until they lawfully obtained his subscriber information. It was only at that point that a link between the IP address and a specific person was made. Before that link, the police knew nothing and could infer nothing about the appellant's biographical core or his
6: anonymous internet activities. So the suggestion is made, well, they could have done something else. Rather than go the Spencer route, they could have... <clears throat> they they could have gone to google or Facebook they could have obtained information via the logins on those sites um, let's assume that that's this case which I know it's not um, would a a requirement of obtaining a warrant solve that or would there be is there a problem with imposing such a requirement even though it might be tend to reveal core biographical information about the user. What, what's your position on that? My, my position
13: on that is that this court's decision in Spencer provides a complete answer. Spencer ensures that in relation to IP addresses, police investigations about online crimes do not unduly intrude on public life. Spencer requires that police get a warrant when they obtain evidence from a third party that links a specific person with specific activity. That link could come through subscriber information. It could come from this other purported information that a company like Google or Facebook has. When the police try to make that link with whatever that information is, subscriber information or otherwise from a third party, they need a warrant to get that third party information.
7: But the police the is not- the- sorry, go ahead.
13: I was going to say the scenario that the appellants raise is already covered by Spencer. It's almost as if the appellants are arguing that Spencer is incorrect, because Spencer protects a person's privacy interests in the scenarios that they raise.
7: But but let's say the police aren't aren't so uh, blatant and don't go to Google or LinkedIn or Facebook and say, give us the subscriber information, so we're not narrowly within Spencer, they have the IP address and then they go to one of these services and pretty much everybody has a, a Google address, email address, or a many have Facebook accounts. And they say, they don't ask for subscriber information. They say, has this ISP been used, uh, this IP been used on your site? And then they give them a list of the, uh, uh, the uh, sp- profiles for which it's been used on your theory, it seems to me that that would not fall within Spencer and that would be fair game. And then what the police have done is circumvented the requirement of Spencer by first getting the, the IP address and then going to and simply asking a question. Has this IP address been used on your site?
13: If the police did what you just described, it would completely change the analysis and it wouldn't necessarily be fair game for the police to do that. The normative inquiry is not based on a set of facts that completely completely changes the reality of what we're addressing. This case, Spencer, Mills, and the other cases all deal with legitimate police investigations. If the facts change to the police simply trolling and going to a third party and doing something that even on its face, as you've described, sounds illegitimate, I would suggest that at that point, we're probably not even dealing with a Section 8 inquiry.
10: But I I guess I'm having some trouble with this argument, and that's why I asked the questions that I did. It seems to me the justification is all that, well, we have to take into account that this is the police investigation of a specific crime. But the question is, when you're looking at the reasonable expectation of privacy against state access— Is that really how you – do you define the reasonable expectation of privacy differently in every case depending on the nature of the state's request? That's not been our jurisprudence, and that's why I'm having difficulty understanding an argument that says you can't look at anything else that the state might do. Just look at this case where I've already got evidence of a crime and I'm investigating a crime which is also a case where you'd readily get a production order, but you've got my question.
13: Yeah, and I've got, I've got two, two answers to your questions. Answering the question whether or not a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy depends on the totality of circumstances. So the circumstances are quite different when you've got a legitimate, it doesn't matter if it's this particular police investigation or another legitimate police investigation. The totality of circumstances are going to differ when you have a legitimate police investigation and an illegitimate police investigation. And I'll paraphrase this court in Mills, paragraphs 30 and and 60 to 62 of Mills, which suggests that the police cannot use law developed with legitimate police investigations in mind to conduct either mass online surveillance or engage in abusive conduct. If the police did do, did do such things, first of all, under a Section 8 analysis, that would change the totality of circumstances and it would be a factor you would have to consider. Secondly, if the police did do that, paraphrasing Mills, we might not even be dealing with a Section 8 question at that point. We might be dealing with a Section 7 concern that strikes at the very heart uh, the administration of justice. Nothing in the trial judge's decision or the court of appeals decision suggests that the police can go to third parties in the absence of a legitimate police investigation and ask them and receive information from those parties.
10: So your answer to the question, does the reasonable expectation of privacy of an, of an ordinary citizen in their IP address change? depending on the reason for the state request? And your answer would be yes. Yes. That's because
13: I, the totality of circumstances are sensitive to the facts. And if the facts change, you know, there's that famous apocryphal quote, I think um, attributed to Churchill, if, if the facts change, my opinion changes.
10: So, so what if, about if, content if, if... neutral? I, I'm just worried that this undermines our complete framework on privacy. We've said you can't be content neutral. It has to be content neutral because it can't – you just don't have privacy only if you're innocent. I mean, it has to be something that attaches to everyone. We've said that you've got to look at the potential for um, uh, invasion of, of, of privacy and looking at it from society's broader perspective – you're asking for a case-by-case analysis, depending on whether it's a police investigation for a specific crime or something that's a little broader or more diffuse than that.
13: Not asking for a case-by-case um, Answer. I'm asking that the totality of circumstances be sensitive to what we're actually dealing with, and you can draw a stark contrast between legitimate police investigations and
6: illegitimate police investigations. I just want to make and, sure I understand your point on that. You're not talking about the content of the information that is said to be private. As I understand it, your answer is neutral vis-a-vis that. What is not neutral is the consideration of why the police are seeking it. That, that's exactly that's exactly what I'm saying. Yes,
7: okay. I'm having difficulty, Mr. Dillon, with your premise that it would be an illegitimate police investigation if they went, to, if the police went to uh, Google uh, on the hypothesis in the expert's report, because presumptively, if the information is not uh, private, if the the IP address is not um, private information, if it's not subject to a uh, reasonable expectation of privacy, what's to stop them going to Google and saying, well, look, the Supreme Court's told us the, the IP address is not uh, private information. It's not subject to a reasonable expectation of privacy. I'm not asking you for subscriber information. I'm simply asking, has this IP address, which is not private, been used on your site? And just just uh, tell me if it has been and who's who's used it. I'm not asking for subscriber information. Um, I don't see why that would be an illegitimate. Police investigation on your hypothesis.
13: Well, to me, what, what he describes does not sound like a legitimate police investigation. It sounds like it's something that's abusive and um, is mass online surveillance or just trolling. Uh, well, nothing. It's, I'm not talking about mass person. online
7: surveillance. I'm talking about one particular IP address in the context of one specific investigation. So I don't see what's, once you assume that the information is not subject to a reasonable expectation of privacy, what you do with the information is fair game, so long as you're not bumping up against Spencer and asking for subscriber information.
13: Well, let's, let's take a step back and look at um, Mr. Muster's evidence. Even his evidence, which the Crown accepts wholeheartedly is that an IP address alone cannot identify someone. The thrust of his evidence is that without subscriber information, the police could try to identify a person, but only if they combined the IP address with information from a third party like Google or Facebook. Right.
10: And how, we, how are third party companies supposed to assess when they're contacted by police for information, how are they supposed to assess whether a police investigation is legitimate or not, if it's about a specific crime or it's about something else? How, how is the third-party company supposed to know whether there's a, a reasonable exp- privacy in that IP address, depending on the nature of the request?
13: Well Google or Facebook would know that if the police are asking for information that could identify a customer that that would be private information. You no, know, justice Sorry, you, you said honest- the
10: IP address is has is has a privacy interest depending on the reason for the state request. How is a third company a party company going to know that?
13: Well, because in in the examples that I'm talking about, the the police are going to a third party company and saying, we're investigating, for example, a fraud. A company was defrauded and they use you as a payment processor. And we would like to know the IP address that uh, was used to commit that fraud. So the company
10: has to ask the questions or has to assess the information they're given to decide whether or not there's privacy in this IP address or not. That sounds very complicated. And it sounds like it would unnecessarily complicate um, police investigations and would unnecessarily put people's privacy at risk. It doesn't seem workable at all. Just to let you know know, what I'm thinking, I'm having a lot of difficulty understanding how our jurisprudence permits for privacy interests to be dependent on the motivation of each individual request.
13: Right. So perhaps perhaps I've been unclear. I'm not saying that every single case is going to have a separate analysis. I'm not suggesting that this court needs to rule in such a way. I'm simply drawing a distinction between what are obviously legitimate police investigations and what are illegitimate police investigations. And in the absence of the police having legitimate investigative reasons to going to any third party, you don't have to worry about whether or not that third party would give the 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 information. If have a two-part answer. First of all, if we had evidence from companies like Google or Facebook or Apple about whether or not they cooperate with the police, we, we might not even be having this discussion. We might learn from them that in the absence of legitimate police investigations, they tell the police to go away and get a warrant if you want any information from us. But in in the absence of any of that information, if the police were to get information, and that third party did provide information and was determined later on that that was not a legitimate police investigation, that evidence would not be admissible. The court should not put a prior restraint on police investigatory action, on the possibility that they're going to be asking to get subscriber information or identifying information in the absence of legitimate reasons. And when they want to get something aside from an IP address that could identify who that IP address belongs to, Spencer says they need a warrant.
9: began your submissions in referring to the fact that here we were in the context of an an investigation uh, and the police wanted the IP addresses uh, associated to the fraudulent transaction. So is it your position that uh, when the investigation is about a crime, an alleged crime, uh, which happened through the mechanism of the Internet, that in such a case, uh, there is no reasonable expectation of privacy attached to the IP address because the mechanism used to commit the crime was the Internet?
13: That's, that's, that's part of the analysis. The mechanism used to commit the crime is not determinative. But when you look at the totality of circumstances and you're sensitive to the facts, you have to give some consideration to that. I mean, for example, Justice Cote, if a person were, were to steal from a liquor store in in, in real life, um, the police wouldn't need judicial authorization to go and, and collect DNA evidence or fingerprint evidence that might reveal a lot about a person's biographical core. Now we're dealing with digital evidence and we're more concerned about digital evidence and, and, and where that could lead. But we still have to take into consideration to uh, paraphrase Justice Brown, the normative inquiry uh, does heavy lifting, but according to the case law, it, it has to do heavy lifting. And when a person leaves behind evidence of a crime with essentially the victim of the crime, then I would suggest that you know a reasonable Canadian would not expect the police to need to get a warrant in that situation. And to further drill down on the facts here, It's worth considering what the third party payment processor actually is. Yes, they're a third party, but they're not a third party like Google or Facebook or an internet service provider. They're a middleman or co-op. In another case, someone who sells goods online may process their own online payments, and when someone defrauds them and they're reporting it to the police, they may say, look, here's what my Uh, payment processing shows. I was defrauded at this date and time in this amount and here's the IP address that was used to defraud me. Reasonable Canadians would not expect that the police would need a warrant in that case to collect uh, victim information.
7: Doesn't that submission sort of bump up against uh, the idea of privacy as anonymity, uh, anonymity that Justice Cromwell sort of explored in Spencer, and I guess also Mr. Kapoor's submission that reasonable Canadians expect to be able to use the internet uh, anonymously to visit you know, their political preferences, whichever newspapers they read, whichever sites they use. So it's true, if somebody's robbing a bank, um, they kind of take the risk that they might be identified, but that seems to me to be a totally different situation than... The expectations of Canadians when they're surfing the internet?
13: So Justice Jamal, there's no question that these online cases provide a challenge for the courts. Canadians expect that their privacy is going to be protected from state surveillance. That's, that's half of what society expects. Canadians also know that the internet provides a rich environment for criminals to commit crimes in ways that are hard for the police to track. Just as much as Canadians want their privacy protected, they also know that every month they have to check their credit card statements carefully every month to see if someone has committed identity theft against them. And if someone has from a balancing approach that Hunter and Southern requires, they don't expect that unnecessary roadblocks will be put up in the way of the police, for the police to get basic information from the victim
7: of, 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 the, uh, of the offense. On the issue of unnecessary roadblocks, do you uh, agree with the uh, statement of Justice Veldhus at the end of her reasons where she said that uh, as a result of amendments to the criminal code, the police could have got a production order on the basis of reasonable suspicion, and they clearly had reasonable suspicion in view of the merchant complaint here. Do you agree that the, and could you, I don't know what the provision is of the criminal code, if you could identify what it is she was referring to as being the basis for a a production order on the basis of reasonable suspicion?
13: Um, I think I can. The the reasonable suspicion relates to, I believe, transmission data. It's just give me one moment, please, Justice Jamal. And I do have um, a more complete answer to your question than just identifying the section of the of the criminal code. Uh, four, eight, I believe she may have been referring to section 487, sub 015, sub 1, which is a, production in order to trace specified communication. And that requires, um, a reasonable submission, a reasonable suspicion standard is the question would be whether or not the, uh, the issues that were the subject matter that we're dealing with here is specified communication, but there is that provision. And I think there are others around that section that also address reasonable suspicion but just dealing with some of the technical aspects that that were raised um, in the appellant submissions, it's not a situation where the police could at once make one application to, uh, to a judge to get uh, the IP address and then get the subscriber data. To get a production order for subscriber data, the police need to know who to serve and the judge issuing the order has to uh, know who to serve And it would have to be two completely separate processes. And also on this point, the police should not have to get a warrant just because they can. It may have been in this case, I think it was probably in this case that the police could have got authorization, but it won't be the case in every instance that the police will have grounds. Um, Some of the attorney general interveners point this out um, in their briefs. Second, the courts have always analyzed whether police need a warrant based on whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, that the police might be able to get a warrant has not been used as a factor to decide the analysis. Third, requiring the police to get a warrant just because they can, puts the court in a position of dictating how precious administration of justice resources will be used. It takes time for the police to draft the application. A judge has to review the application. Then if a warrant is granted, it doesn't mean that future litigation is avoided. The accused can always argue later on that the warrant should not have issued because the preconditions to issuance were not met.
7: You accept that there was reasonable suspicion here in view of the the merchant complaint, though? Right? I mean, that clearly satisfies the standard of reasonable suspicion. Yes.
0: I agree Um, with you that the focus needs to be on whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. But when you're just arguing here that it's not important that you might be able to get a warrant, I'm going to flip that and ask you, why is it important about the ease of police investigation Uh, That seems to be a uh, counter, you seem to be suggesting if a production order was required for this type of information, that that would make uh, investigation less easy. Where is that um, appropriately a part then of your reasonable expectation of privacy analysis? Um, Justice
13: Martin, my my answer isn't that it would make police investigations less easy. It's just that it would require the police to um, and the courts to. Put resources on something that they shouldn't have to put resources on. And the courts should shouldn't be in a, in a position where they're directing. The police and the courts to expend resources just for reasons of expediency.
0: Well, if you find a reasonable expectation of privacy, that's not... I mean, the expediency goes the other way, doesn't it? I mean, because maybe somebody would say, if first of all, if there's other ways you can get the information uh, absent asking um, Moneris or the the IPS, uh, maybe, maybe that could be done. But when you're actually going to uh, somebody that has that information, Um, should it be the decision of that entity as to whether or not the privacy concerns of uh, the people using the internet are are or are not protected? Or is that not exactly what courts and legislatures um, are responsible for, is to determine what the limits of privacy are and when state action needs to be authorized?
13: It would be very dangerous if this court made a decision that's adjusted any time the police go to a third party and ask for something that they need judicial authorization. No, we're
0: only talking about an IP here, right?
13: Right. And so we should be asking, is there a reasonable expectation of privacy right. in the IP address? If there if there is, then then yes. If there's not, then no. That's why I'm trying to focus the the analysis on on this actual question of whether or not there is the reasonable expectation of privacy in the, in the IP address. So I've got, I've got about three minutes. So I think I can hopefully make about three points about why there isn't a reasonable expectation of privacy. So functionally, the police investigation proceeded in steps. The uh, police officer's uncontradicted testimony was that she wanted the uh, IP address so she could take the next step, which was look up on a, on a lookup site and find out who the, um, IP address belong to. Our next step would be then to uh, go to that ISP and serve them with a production order. It's, an, it's not a functional approach to combine those two steps. It's an artificial approach because it ignores that getting the subscriber information is a clear and distinct step and it's clear and distinct because there's a wall between the police and getting that information and that wall is a judge has to authorize getting that information. That links the person to the IP address. Um, the second point I'd like to make is that if you, the, the IMSI and the IMEI uh, information, the Crown endorses the, the trial judge's analysis um, at paragraphs 39 to 42 of her judgment. Those numbers allow the police to. Um, find out who a person's communicating with, how often they're communicating with that person. The police can triangulate a person's location. They can track their movements with with that type of information. Uh, It's simply not um, analogous. Um, I may have time for more than three points, so I'll make as many as I can. Justice Jamal, you, you raised the Privacy Commissioner's report that the intervener has attached in his factum, and my submission on this point is stark in that it's, it would be extremely dangerous to rely on that um, privacy commissioner report. I can really do no better than quote this court in paragraph seventy-five of Sharma, that interveners have no right to expand the the record before the courts. If you look at the the record of this trial, and it's in the um, it's in the AR. Of the the appellant record, tab three a line sixty six to thirty um, and following. The appellant, when he submits the report of Mr. Musters, makes the point that in Spencer, Justice Cromwell said we actually know very little about IP addresses. And the report of Mr. Musters, which was subject to cross examination by the Crown, he said he was submitting that to fill that gap in.
10: Are you are and you saying that we don't have the right as the Supreme Court of Canada to consider that report?
13: No, you 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 have the right to 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 look at it. But into, but, what probative value are you going to put on a report? Does it
10: depend on what we think the probative value is?
13: Uh, well, here's 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 the problem with that. If that report had been introduced at trial the crown may have sought to cross-examine the author of that report who by the way is anonymous we don't know what who that person is what they did to uh, generate the information that's in that report mr muster's report was there to tell the court what an ip address is and what are the possibilities for the police to glean information about a person just from an IP address. And if there's evidence, outside of that agreed upon evidence between the parties about what the police can do with an IP address, then the record's been expanded and the trial process has been undermined. So at bottom, you should put very little probative value on a report done years before by an anonymous author.
7: Well, the anonymous author—it's the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, which is an officer of Parliament with a public interest mandate to protect the privacy of Canadians. So I don't think it's uh, uh, an anonymous author. It is a public, uh, public uh, as an officer of Parliament. So, and it's entirely consistent, as I read the Privacy Commissioner's report, with the conclusion of Mr. Mr. Musters that you don't actually need the uh, subscriber information in order to paint a picture, and the Privacy Commissioner gives the example of a government computer that was used to, you know, surf around a bunch of different sites. So you can construct a composite, and that's exactly what Mr. Muster says. So I, 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 I agree, you know, interveners shouldn't be sort of uh, augmenting the record, but this is sort of in a grey zone it seems to me, that's sort of Brandeis-type material from an office Officer of Parliament. So I'm not sure it can be dismissed so readily.
3: So I'll let you answer the, this last question because your time is up.
7: Sure.
13: Um, Justice Jamal, I'm not calling into to question the uh, the integrity of, of an officer of parliament. All I'm saying is that if you find that what's in that privacy commissioner's report says, and if I quote you wrong, I apologize, says no more what mr muster's report says then why look at the report just rely on the report that was agreed to by the parties in which the crown had um, the full right to to challenge if they
3: so sought at trial thank you very much mr schoenbrucker yes uh
1: thank you chief justice and good morning uh, justices I'm here with my colleague, uh, Ms. Ratsoy, on behalf of the Director of Public Prosecutions to respectfully ask this court to remind everyone that the question whether an IP address is charter protected information engages a critical balancing of interests. Uh, I will say we, we have spoken, uh, the, the various government participants in advance of the hearing as you would expect. And I anticipate some of the questions that have been raised uh, fall in the wheelhouse of my colleagues from Ontario and from British Columbia. Um, so it's not that I'm trying to avoid some of these questions. I'm, I'm just trying not to steal their thunder or, or be repetitive in my submissions. So a general submission um is where i come from uh, respectfully since hunter and southern which for section 8 charter analysis was really the get-go uh from this court it's 1984 this court has repeatedly said that there has to be a balancing of interests when you're taking uh section 8 to issues like this is there a reasonable expectation of privacy in an ip address On the one hand, you have the individual's interest in being left alone. On the other hand, you have society's interests in the police being able to do an effective and efficient investigation. Um, Neither approach is a complete answer yet. You can't look at only the individual's interests and you can't only look at uh, law enforcement interests. You have to balance them. That's what the balancing approach is about. And the whole problem in the judgment of the dissenting justice in the court of appeal below and the whole problem in the analysis that the appellant is putting forward in my respectful submission is it's not appropriately balanced too much attention is being paid i say respectfully to the individual interest in being left alone and you you start by for example looking at the tesling questions there's four of them the first Tesling question is, what is the subject matter of the search? And in my respectful submission, when you characterize the subject matter of the search, that becomes critical to the analysis. And if you don't take into account what the police are trying to do when you ask what is the subject matter of the search and then answer that question, it tilts the entire analysis and drives one to a conclusion that may not properly reflect a more balanced approach. The the example is Tesling. Tesling uh, is the FLIR case, the forward-looking infrared radar. And on the one hand, uh, if you say, are the police just getting a heat signal from the roof of the house, that characterization of the subject matter of the search is going to drive the analysis in a certain direction. On the other hand, if, if you ask, are the police effectively looking inside what's going on in the home, and seeing activity and monitoring activity, that characterization of the subject matter of the search is also going to drive a certain conclusion that is in a different direction. So, so in my respectful submission, it's it's really important to step back and ask the balanced question. How does the individual's interest in privacy compared to society's interest in effective law enforcement tell us what the subject matter of the search is and then the fourth tessling question is the same balancing. On the totality of the circumstances, is it an objectively reasonable expectation of privacy? And it's only if it meets that standard on the fourth Testling question that the Charter uh, protects that particular information.
0: But how and, specific are we going to be um, in terms of the, what are they trying to do? At one level of abstraction, we can always say they're investigating crime. Um, right, and the other is uh, what are they trying to do? They're trying to get the the beginning of a way to identify this person. They're trying to uh, identify this person. I mean, so so how much um, goes into the characterization there, um, and and isn't that uh, itself problematic? That we're just talking about choices we make about characterization. It
1: is very problematic, Justice Martin. Thank you for
0: the question. The difficulty, I
1: think, that is arising here, and I see this in some of the very uh, provocative and and excellent questions that have been asked, is we're dealing with a case where all the police wanted is a single breadcrumb. That's the position I put in my factum chief justice, if I can have 10 seconds. Sure. And and there are so many other what-ifs. And as Justice Jamal said, you know, and, and sorry, Justice Brown said, if we have to look at all of the other what-ifs and consider all of the other possible permutations, we quickly get into the great morass of the unknown. We don't know where technology is going to be in three or five years, and I'm encouraging this court to try to stick to the IP address and the breadcrumb in this particular case. Sorry, Chief Justice, that was longer, but thank you for your opportunity. All right, for thank you the very much.
3: Thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Andrew
5: Otke. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. The Attorney General for Ontario makes two main submissions on this appeal. First, Ontario submits that in deciding the issue of whether there is a reasonable expectation of privacy in an IP address, this court should determine the important issue of what the subject matter is that is engaged by an IP address by looking at what information an IP address can itself reveal. Ontario respectfully urges the court not to focus as the dissenting justice did on what the police who obtained the IP addresses were ultimately after in their investigation. The second point is that Ontario urges the court to consider in its assessment of the appellant's claim to a reasonable expectation of privacy in an IP address, the impact that could follow for effective law enforcement in Canada from accepting the appellant's claim. Now, I've address those points in my fact, and I have some points prepared for those I can go to, but I think I want to start instead by addressing a question that's come up a couple of times from the bench and trying to give Ontario's answer to that question. So the question, as I understand it, that comes up is, if the court holds in this case on these facts that there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in an IP address, does it not follow from that that police could, armed with an IP address, go to internet companies such as Google or Facebook and ask those companies to hand over a trove of data related to that IP address asking something to the effect of perhaps uh, provide us with everything this IP address may or, may have done on your website and then from there build a web of information and try to determine the identity of that otherwise unknown user. And Ontario's response to that is first to say these are are very distinct police actions. It's a distinct action to ask a website in respect of particular online activity, what's the IP address connected to that activity? And that's what happened in this case. It's a very different and distinct police action in my respectful submission to then take an IP address and go around to one website or more and ask for a trove of information to then try to create a web to perhaps try to triangulate who that person might be. And it's Ontario's position, similar to Alberta's position, and then my friend's submission that Spencer already answers what um, should be done in that case. Because really what's happening in that case is that the police are in the latter case where they're collecting that information. They are seeking information that would tend to identify an individual, an otherwise anonymous individual. And Spencer has already said that there is a privacy interest there that is protected. And so I also heard a comment about sidestepping. Well, isn't there a concern that the police would engage in sidestepping? It'd be my respectful submission that when the police take steps to sidestep what the court has said is permissible, as my friend said, that does engage Section 8 concerns and it can even engage Section 7 concerns. And I'll try with my time to give one brief uh, analogous example. This court has said that if you want to get text messages Um, that are prospective that haven't happened yet in the future that a wiretap is required but this court has also said that for historical messages a production order is sufficient and it's been suggested that well does that not open the door to sidestepping and that the police could if they want future messages just wait a couple of days and then get a production order instead of a wiretap as this court has said is required. And in my respectful submission, it's similar to this case in that if the police were to do that, that would certainly engage Section 8 concerns and even potentially Section 7 concerns, it's not permitted. So to circle back to my first point, this court has already said in Spencer, it has already given protections to anonymous online activity. In this particular case, when we focus on what was asked for and what was provided, it's an IP address we have to focus on what that IP address could reveal. It could not reveal the identity of the unknown internet user. And that's very different from a case where police take an IP address and ask for a whole bunch of information to try to essentially do what Spencer says is protected by Section 8. That didn't happen in this case. And in my respectful submission, that's an important consideration. Uh, Subject to any questions, I have about uh, 30 seconds left, but those would be my submissions. I'll rest on my factum for those two points I outlined at the outset. Thank you very much.
3: Mika Renkin.
14: <clears throat> yes. Uh, good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. In my submissions today, I plan on focusing on two areas. The first is the characterization of the subject matter of a search. And the second is how the subject matter impacts on the concept of a protected biographical core of information. On the subject matter point, we respectfully question the dissenting justice characterization of the subject matter in this case. The problem as we see it with the dissenting justice's approach is that it conflates the police's investigational objectives with the immediate target of a search or seizure. And we submit that that's the wrong approach to the subject matter inquiry. The subject matter inquiry asks what the police are after and not why they are after it. And we submit that cases like Tesling, Spencer, Merica, all reflect an approach to the subject matter uh, inquiry that's far more precise than is found in the dissenting justice's reasons. And one of the key problems um, that arises in our submission from the dissent's approach is that it short circuits or overwhelms the outcome of the overall Section 8 inquiry. And that's exactly what we say occurred in this case. And I would point specifically to paragraph 80 of the dissenting justice's reasons where she concludes that there is a high level of informational pr- uh, privacy. And that's a, that's in her analysis of the subject matter of the inquiry. And so what results is that early on in the analysis, under the subject matter, the dissenting justice has effectively predetermined the result under the remainder of the analysis. And we suggest that the kind of broad approach that was adopted with respect to the subject matter is something that would repeat itself in, in predetermining the result in other cases. Our second point, and it's a related point, concerns the biographical core. And what we say with respect to the biographical core is that the dissenting justice's approach to the subject matter largely renders the concept of a protected biographical core meaningless. And the reason for that is because by adopting the kind of broad approach to subject matter that focuses on investigational objectives, what occurs is that generic information or what we submit as generic information becomes highly personal because of what it may eventually be used to reveal through subsequent uh, investigative steps, most if not all of which would require uh, further authorization from a court. And so on this theory, we say that virtually any information will be part of the biographical core. And the, the concept of, of a biographical core has has been critical to this court's informational privacy jurisprudence since plant. Its importance was reaffirmed again recently uh, in the Sherman and State case in, in defining the boundaries of the open court principle. And the reason why the biographical core is an essential concept is it because it has this, it assists conceptually with delineating the boundaries of where Section 8 protection begins and ends. And unless there are some boundaries, Section 8 would apply to virtually every piece of information the police could acquire about an individual. Now we submit that on its face, an IP address doesn't reveal anything that fits within the biographical core. It's a series of numbers. It's the subsequent investigative steps that, potentially reveal biographical core information. And in Spencer, this court concluded that Section 8 was engaged when an IP address was linked to the activity of a specific individual. And from what I hear about the hypothetical that's being posited with respect to Google or Facebook, if it's informational activity related to an IP address, that may well require a production order. But Spencer already deals with this particular fact pattern. And I submitted the reason why the dissenting justice in the present case found that an IP address touched on the biographical core was because of her characterization, or I would suggest mischaracterization of the subject matter um, of the the search as being the identity of an internet user. So in our submission, uh, our respectful submission, this court should reject an approach to the subject matter that so clearly erodes the important concept of the protected biographical core. I can see, uh, I have a few seconds left, but uh, uh, that uh, completes my submissions unless, of course, Justices, you have any questions. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Any reply, Edgar Ferg?
8: Yes. Thank you, Chief Justice. I want to return first to the question that was asked earlier. uh, What should police have done in this case? Our submission is that the section that was referenced, section 487.016 is applicable here. It's difficult for me to see how this, how the IP address does not meet the definition of transmission data in that portion of the code. I also want to respond. My friend made the comment that the public would not expect police to need a warrant. The existence of this provision and the related provisions in this portion of the code in my submission reflects the considered, decision of the democratically elected government um, to subject this information to a warrant requirement and that's significant contextual information in the normative inquiry. There was also a question earlier about why a warrant for the third party information, um, the content information is not a sufficient safeguard against the privacy risks in this case. And the first response is that police already have content information. As I mentioned earlier, they do open source searches. Uh, There is content uh, information that is available public on the internet. And this court made the point in Telus Communications that the terms of service or consumer choices in terms of, in that case, uh, cell phone providers, in this case, internet activity, sites that are visited, should not dictate the privacy protections, whether or not the information, the activity online is visible, uh, the posting, whatever it might be, um, is not a principled or consistent basis to safeguard the privacy interests at stake. Um, Moving to the discussion of what the police are really after and the argued challenges in defining that, the case law says repeatedly to take a functional approach, a broad approach. Um, but there isn't a lot of discussion, and what I think is helpful is to focus on what the function that the answer needs to perform. And the function, in my submission, is to define and allow the privacy interests to be comprehended in the context of the democratic and normative approach that the court is to take. So it's not about the specific investigation. It's not about where it falls along the possible steps. That will often dovetail in terms of how close is it to the ultimate you know, identity in this case versus tends to identify or identifying core biographical information relates to intimate details. But the, the whole of the Section 8 test, the reasonable expectation of privacy test, is to determine whether or not the public would expect this to be free from state intrusion on an unfettered basis. And that's the function that asking about the subject matter of the search has to perform. And the portions of Spencer that I think outline this clearly that I referenced earlier would be paragraphs 26 to 32 of that decision.
7: Could I ask you about the submission that we heard, which is basically that Spencer should be extended beyond uh, uh, going to ISPs, but also to going to any other third-party website uh, or any other uh, provider uh, of a service that in effect that's the safeguard that you would be doing an end run around Spencer if you went to Google or Facebook or any other company if you asked for that information. And really that calls for an extension of Spencer uh, and that that is the safeguard. What do you say about that?
8: I have I think two answers to that. The first is that there are a number of production order provisions that would apply to obtaining content. But the submission I made just a moment ago about the content that's visible, none of that protects against. So, so, you know, the example that was used earlier, I think by yourself, Justice Jamal, was they have the post and they'd like to know whose whose IP address is this, or who has um, connected with this IP address, who sent any emails to it? Do you have any history from this person? they are going to have that publicly available information and a warrant requirement for third party content is not going to protect against it. I also would query whether if the organizing principle as it were of the content sought from the third party is it all relates to this IP address and we've said an IP address is meaningful and unprotected. It's difficult to understand what the privacy interest might be in that collection of information about what we've said is a meaningless number. Um, And so it's not clear to me that that would assist um, in terms of the law enforcement concerns I suppose the my main submission would be I agree with the BCCLA that law enforcement concerns live elsewhere in the framework the place that we deal with legitimate or illegitimate police investigations is in whether grounds exist not in the threshold test but I see my time is up
3: all right thank you very much I'd like to thank counsel for uh their there are submissions, the court will take the case under advisement. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its
2: creation.